22 years. We've been here a long time, served as an elder for almost two decades, and I teach up the, up the road at the seminary. We're just delighted to be here at North Wake, and this morning I'm particularly thankful for the opportunity that the elders have given me to, uh, to preach the Word and to be in the Scriptures with you. So if you have your Bibles with you today, please open up to Colossians chapter 4. That's where we'll be in the text, or if you need to turn yours on, turn yours on. And uh, I'm going to read for us Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6, which is our text for this morning. So follow along with me, if you will. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time, and let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, as we open up this text, we would pray that the the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, I want to get you to think about Oreos for a moment, okay? I want you to think about Oreos. Uh, this is a dangerous thing among Baptists to make you think about food in a sermon before you go to lunch, but we'll, uh, we'll hang in there with me on this. As you think about Oreos, I want to just know, how many of you would say that you really like Oreos? Okay, I'm not surprised to see so many hands. In fact, how many of you would say you've eaten an Oreo in the last year? All right. How many would say you've eaten an Oreo in the last month? Okay, how about in the last week? Who's in that category? Do we have anybody who's eaten an Oreo this morning? <laughs> all right, we need to pray for those if they know. Okay, you're all safe so far on that. All right, well, I want, the reason I want to bring this up, did you know that Oreos are the world's most best-selling cookie? Okay, so here's a few fun facts about Oreos on that. Each year in the United States, or around the globe, excuse me, there's over 40 billion Oreos that are made and consumed, and if you were to stack those up, they would circle the globe five times. Can you imagine that? But since Oreos have been invented, since the beginning, over 450 billion Oreos have been made. So if you were to take that and stack those up on each other, they would go to the moon and back five times. Right? Those are the things we've put in our bodies, and we wonder why we look the way we do, right? A little-known fact about Oreos is that Oreos are actually vegan-friendly, and uh, so they've changed the fat in some of these, so they're both kosher and vegan. In case that's your world, you want to live there, then you can still have an Oreo. And then this one uh, is, is particularly interesting to me. In 2013, there was a study that, that was done that suggests that the fats and the sugars in the Oreos make them just as addictive as cocaine. Okay, so now when I read this, Oreos aren't my favorite cookie, but this one was like scales fell, fell off my eyes and I began to understand things about myself, right? <laughs> it was like all of a sudden I'm like, oh my, okay, now I understand. Because I don't know about you all, but if, 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 if there's a bag of Oreos in front of me, I eat them by the sleeve, right? There's three of those and, and it's gone. In fact, my wife can attest to this. If we get Oreos at the house, I'll be sitting there and eating them and I'll, I'll finish a sleeve of these things and I'll wonder who's been stealing my cookies, right? Where did they go? In fact, I'll even hide the bags of Oreos in our home so that my wife now, she, it's only us at home, but when the kids were there, I'd hide them somewhere so they couldn't find my Oreos, 
right? Am I telling the truth? Yes. So I think there is uh, no other place or no other food on the planet that I get closer to gluttony with than with Oreos. And so I can't buy them very often because I don't know where they went. I'm like a vacuum, right? They just, I'm like a goldfish. I would eat myself to death with these things. And that's just not a good thing. And what's also interesting now is that they actually come in multiple varieties, right? So I'm like, get behind me, Satan, right? This is, it's not... So you might be thinking this morning, okay, Lederbrock, why are you talking about Oreos? What's going on? Why are you spending this time talking about Oreos? Well, the funny thing is I'm willing to bet now, in fact, I'd love to hear from some of you next week, but I'm willing to bet that about half of you are going to buy a bag of Oreos today just because I did this to you. And for you all, I'm sorry that I, I got you started on this. But the real reason, the purpose that I want to do this is because I want to place in your mind a memorable idea to help accomplish three things this morning. The first one is that I want to give you a memorable way to understand how Paul shapes the entire book of Colossians. So I'll talk about that for a few minutes. Secondly, I want to give you a key principle of discipleship that this can actually work as a metaphor to help us understand. And then finally, based on those two, it will lead us to have the proper context to understand the specific passage that we're in. Okay, so let me kind of briefly speak to those as I kind of introduce our our conversation this morning. So Paul writes his book, and this is the fanciest word I'll use for you this morning. He writes this book by using something that's called an inclusio. And that's just a real fancy word for saying that when a writer wants to get a point across, sometimes they'll put an idea in the beginning of a book that they'll repeat in some fashion on the back end of the book. So an inclusio means that he's writing with something here and something here, and what's in the middle is the is the kind of the meat of things. Our passage this morning is the back end of that inclusio. Okay, so in some senses, when we think about that, you could put it in the context of an Oreo cookie. There's a cookie, right, and then there's the center cream of the cookie, and then there's the back end of the cookie that's there. And so in this particular book that we're in, the book of Colossians, you would see in the front part of the book. There is um, a whole section where, yeah, there you go on the screen. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, verses 9 and 10, you're going to see that he's going to tell the Colossian folks the things he's praying for them and that he wants them to do. And what you'll see sandwiched right in there or, or put right in the beginning is an idea about mission, an idea about what we should be conducting ourselves like, and then he's going to be praying for them. And you're going to see those exact same things in the back end of the passage here today. So let me actually show you the two passages so you can see those. Here's from, first, or from Colossians chapter 1. You're going to see in the highlighted place here, he's going to highlight places where he's going to pray for them. He's going to be concerned about how they walk. And then you'll notice with kind of the greenish tint up there, the places where he's praying that they would be folks who show fruits in their ministry. Okay. Now, in the back end of the book, when you see the next passage and the one we've just read through on here, notice that he talks about how he's going to be, uh, that he wants us to be a people of prayer, and then he's going to uh, help us to be praying for the doors to be open for our ministry, that there would be fruit in ministry, and then he's going to have a lot to say to us about our conduct or our walk. So again, this is kind of an inclusio is the fancy word for that, but what was said in the beginning of the book is what he's doing now is he draws closer to a conclusion and everything else is this, this wonderful tasting cream 
okay? So that's what he's doing there. So that brings me to the second big idea of why I'm wanting to place this metaphor in your mind is that there's a really important discipleship principle that's connected to that, and it simply is this. Proper motivation for behavior depends on great theology. Okay, proper motivation for proper behavior depends on beautifully rich theology. Or if you were to say it simply like this, right living depends upon right beliefs about God. Okay, right living depends about right beliefs about God. And so this then will then give us the opportunity for us to, to look at some of the things prior to getting back into this passage today to help us to understand the great creams of doctrine that the, this book has been lavishing upon us so that when we get to the final place and we look at our particular passage, things begin to make sense within the entire book. Okay? So that brings us to that third part of trying to paint the picture of right doctrines. Let me say it again one more time. Doctrinal content cream, like in an Oreo cookie, holds together the cookies, right? So that's what we're doing in this thing. So if, if you're gonna eat Oreos, it's my personal opinion, and you might share this with me, that you probably should eat double stuff, right? <laughs> because they're just so good, and if you take them and you dip them in that nice cold milk and they just get just crispy and soft at the right time, if you go too long and it drops off in the milk cup and that's not good, but it's just right to have double stuff on there. So that's a, a bad way to just try to say that Paul actually gives us kind of double stuff center here because what he's going to do is he's going to give us doctrinal truths about who God is, but he's also going to give us doctrinal truths about how to live that will lead us right up into our passage. So let me show you that from the text this morning. If the way to stick with this, then, is to think about the rich, creamy doctrines leading up to our passage. And if you were to take that cream, and with that cream, then, find the ingredients of what makes that cream, it'd be awesome, right? Well, let me give you four ingredients that Paul has given us for the cream of the book of Colossians, all right? So sticking with the metaphor, right? Oreos today. Oreos. You're never going to forget Oreos. In fact, the sad part is you're probably going to go and think about... Uh, the book of Colossians, you'll open it up and you'll think about Oreos, right? <laughs> what I really want you to do is when you see Oreos is to be thinking about the book of Colossians, right? That's our goal as we think about this. All right, so ingredient number one. I want you to see that in the book of Colossians, right after he does the first half of the inclusio, the cookie, the, the Lord instructs Paul, he inspires Paul to give us one of the most stunning passages in the Bible related to something that uh, has to do with the supremacy of Jesus Christ and the incomparable nature of who he is. Right, so in Colossians chapter 1 then, we've, Larry preached on this several weeks back, but Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20, listen to these words again as we, we see this first major ingredient, the supremacy of the incomparable Christ in all things. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things, even cookies, hold together, right? And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And, and that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. 
So this first ingredient that Paul puts out in the book has to do with the supremacy. And we're going to see in just a second the headship of the incomparable Christ. Because what Paul does from that, once he hits that particular passage in in, uh, Colossians 1, he then in in chapter 2 will actually speak of the supreme nature of who Christ is by using the language of headship. And so what that means is that he speaks of God being the person, Jesus being the person who's in, in primary position of authority over the church. And that's a kind and a good thing for us. So in the supremacy of the incomparable Christ, he's the head or the chief authority over all of us and over the church. That's ingredient number one. Ingredient number two that goes into this cream center of the book of Colossians is that what Paul will then follow this up with, if you look down at your text in Colossians chapter 3, really verses 1 through 16, but you can see it in the first five verses there, he'll tell us to keep seeking who this God is. Keep your minds on Christ, to to look out for Christ. And in that process, to, to put off the old self and then to put on the new self in Christ so that we'd be, we would become conformed to Christ. So ingredient number two focuses our mind on this great, supreme, incomparable Christ. Okay? Now, ingredient number three that sets up the center of this book is that Paul moves from that to the passage where he then says at verse 17, and Daniel just highlighted this a few moments ago, if you want to think of this verse 17 as kind of like if you're thinking about human conduct on this planet, this verse along with 1 Corinthians 10.31 may capture the center point or the pinnacle idea of how Christians are supposed to live almost more than any other verse in the Bible. And what he says in this one is that because the supremacy of the incomparable Christ who is head over all things is so stunning that no matter what you do, whether it's little, whether it's big, whether it's simple, whether it's complex, whether it's mundane, whether it's profound, whether it's silly, whether it's glorious, whether it's tying your shoes or dying as a martyr, whatever you do, in word and in deed, do it all because of the supremacy of the incomparable Christ. And that then becomes the place where Paul gives us the fourth ingredient that comes, this beautiful cream filling in the book of Colossians, where then he goes from that and he finally says, okay, in light of this being true, let me give you applications for four specific areas. And this is what Noah preached on last week, right? Four specific areas where where Paul would say, because of the supremacy of Christ, let me tell you four beautiful things that we need to do. So the first thing he did is in in, uh, verse 18 of chapter 3 is he gives us the stunningly beautiful, hopeful doctrine of submission for wives. That this is a place where the wives in in the congregation should understand that they should submit to their husbands because it's a picture of how the church is supposed to submit itself to the supremacy of the glorious Christ. And so this is a hopeful doctrine, one in which wives would learn a proper place in how they should live. Following this immediately on verse 19, Paul goes right to the husbands and he tells them the stunningly beautiful doctrine of laying down your life for your wife, loving her like Christ loves the church. And in doing that then, this idea of headship and submission then should never be understood through the grid of a power structure. 
In fact, if we're thinking of this as a power structure, then we're missing the doctrine of headship and submission. What we should rather think about it is the glorious way that the Lord set up the universe so that the church would respond to the supremacy of Christ, and we get to model that out in the way that we live here on this planet. Right? So there's authority, but there's a difference here than a power structure. That's kind of postmodern language of the day. Instead, God wants us to be thinking about the beautiful doctrines that these represent. From that, then, right following that in Colossians chapter 3, then what he does is he talks about the beautiful doctrines of parenting, how children should obey their parents and parents should love their children and not exasperate them, particularly fathers. And then finally, as you move to the end of that chapter, which sets us up for our passage, is the stunningly beautiful ideas of how homes should be run and businesses should be done, where the, those who are in authority in those contexts would love those who are, who are under their authority in those contexts. So that's what goes in in this beautiful cream, the center of the cookie. Let me show it to you again, this inclusio, where this Oreo is on the front end of the book. is we're praying for you. We pray that you be fruitful. We pray that you watch your life and conduct. And now we come back to our passage of Scripture again, and we'll see it. So we can jump now specifically into our passage and have the content to see how Paul's wrapping up his argument in this particular book. So what we could do really with this passage that we're in, Colossians chapter 2 or 4, verses 2 through 6, we could probably actually title it, Reaching the Lost Under the Supremacy and the Headship of the Incomparable Christ. Okay, so with that in mind then, why would I say reaching this lost is central to this passage? Well, if you look down at your Bibles, I want you to look at verse, uh, where is it, uh, my glasses, let me put my glasses on, make sure I'm with you on that. I'm getting old, folks. I've been here a long time. So note the word in verse 5, the word outsiders. What he does here is he says, we're going to want to make sure that those folks who are outside of the faith, those who are, the, literally it means those who are without, have the opportunity to hear about the supremacy of Christ. And so the instructions Paul's going to give to us here, it's basically an instructions towards pleading with the Holy Spirit that the way we live would invite those who are non-believers into our midst so that they would become believers. And he's going to do this in three specific areas. He's going to talk about our prayer life, he's going to talk about our conduct, and then he's going to attach onto that the language of speech, how we should conduct ourselves in public communication. So let's dive in here a little bit with Colossians chapter 4 and look at verses 2 through 4. Let me read those again for you. Let me get over that in this text here. Look at what he says. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open to us a door for the word so that we may speak with the mystery of Christ for which I have been imprisoned, that I may make clear in the way I ought to speak. Now, three things I want to point out for you here in regard to what should mark our prayer lives. What should mark our prayer lives? First, Paul says that we should be continuously steadfast or devoted to our prayer life. Now, what's interesting in the Greek language that's underneath here, the word that's used actually gives you the idea of something that's marked by strength, that our prayer lives should be strong towards prayer. Now, one might even say, if you were to dig into some of the original language here, that this is actually a language that has to do with soldiers and war 
And, and in that context, some of the commentators would even say a good way to interpret this passage for two is to suggest that we should be people who are strong in prayer to the sense in which we're persisting in a siege against Satan and hell. So our prayer life is meant to be, and Paul is telling the Colossians that they should be steadfast, they should be continuous, they should be tenacious in their prayer, and they should be actively engaged with it. So you'll notice what follows this is he tells them to be watchful or to alert, to be alert. And again, the language of almost kind of a soldiering should come to our minds that the person who's praying should be like somebody who's on guard duty. So instead of us being merely those who repeat words like Jesus rebuked the Pharisees who just repeated words and prayers and it didn't really mean a whole lot to him. No, instead of being cold and listless, our prayer lives should be ones that are marked by us being alert, being ready. We're kind of watching the world we're in and we're saying, I'm praying for these things. I'm praying over these things, doing it with strength. Now, in addition to this, what's interesting to me about this passage is that Paul also tells us that our prayer should be marked by thanksgiving. And I wanted to give you a visual to kind of help you think about what Paul's actually doing for us here. When Paul asks us to be in prayer in a way that's thankful, I want you to remember that he's in prison, chained up, behind bars, and unable to get out of that place to do the thing he was called to do. I mean, think about this for a minute. Paul grew up a Jewish young boy, was trained basically to have a, probably the equivalent of a PhD in his culture. As, and as a Jewish man, he's probably not thinking, someday I'm going to be in prison preaching Jesus. In fact, he's, he's, he's uh, part of his early life, he's actually a persecutor of Christians. The Lord takes his life, radically rearranges him through his, con- his conversion, and then he tells him, Paul, you're going to be the one who's going to go to all the nations and tell the Gentiles about Jesus. So, okay, he starts on this journey. And along the way, thing after thing, event after event, are probably very unexpected for him. He's shipwrecked, the scriptures tell us. He's whipped. He's stoned and left for dead. And now we find him sitting in a jail cell. Remember, the Lord told him, you're to go to all the world. And the way the sovereign, supreme head of the universe, the incomparable Christ, wants him to do that is he locks Paul in a prison. And Paul's telling us to be thankful. I wonder what this means. I started thinking about this week as I was thinking about why I'm not so thankful. And I was wondering about you and me, and we think about these passages together. What happens in your life when something horrible goes on? Are, are, are your prayers marked by thankfulness? I know mine frequently are not. What if your prayers are not answered in a timely manner? What if they're not answered in a way that you like? What if your marriage is in disarray? How do you pray thankfully? What if your kids are in disarray? What if you've lost a family member unexpectedly and the heartache that goes with that? What if your job is going poorly? What if you find yourself in an extended context of neglect or abuse even? Paul would tell us even in those places there should be a prayerfulness of thankfulness. And I started to think, how? How? 
And I was reading this week in John Calvin's commentaries on this, and Calvin actually was really helpful for me here. He said, you know, there's really two things that can help us mark our prayers with thankfulness, even at these times. The first is, is that we should always go back to remember what a great salvation that Jesus has given to us in spite of our circumstances. That Christ has done something stunning for us, and that should always make us thankful people. But secondarily, we should remember this important point, and this is one of these great places why it's so important to remember the cream of doctrine when we get to these places where Paul's constructing our lives. Because the supremacy of the incomparable Christ who's head over all of the universe means that from the beginning of time to the end of time, he's been there, he sees it all in the middle, and his wisdom knows better than I do. And even then, when I come to places where there's incredibly intense hardship, one of the ways I can give thanks is, Lord Jesus, you are supreme over all things, and while I don't understand it, I know you are in control. And I think this might be why Paul, in another letter that he writes when he's in jail, says it this way, I know whom I've believed, and I'm convinced he is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him until that day. And what he means by that day is that day when someday we'll all either pass away or the Lord will come back, but we'll see him face to face, and there'll be a fuller understanding of all the things that went on in our lives. But between this day and that day, sometimes it's just really, really hard to be thankful. And so to know the supremacy of this God helps us to say, Father, Maybe even like the Father in, in Mark chapter 9. Lord God, I want to believe. Help me with my unbelief. Today I want to be thankful because I know what you've done for me. And I know who you are. You're the sovereignly supreme, incomparable Christ. And so even in my pain, maybe my prayers are prayers of faith in who this Christ is. See what holds the cookies on? are the cream of the doctrines in between. And this has implications for how we live then. So note then, if you will, who our prayers should be about when we're praying. As we move into this text here and you look down in the passage of Scripture, notice that Paul is telling us then we should be thinking about praying in such a way that our, our prayers are actually moving outward from ourselves towards evangelism. So it's actually really, really pretty profound that Paul prays for, think about this again, where, think of where he is, he's in prison, and he prays for open doors to the gospel. So I'm wondering why he's sitting there in jail, I'm supposed to take the gospel to the nations, maybe I can tell this jailer about Jesus, maybe I can tell the other prisoners about Jesus, who knows, maybe he's actually literally praying, Lord, would you open this door so I can get out and tell people about Jesus? But in either way, what he's doing is he's focusing his prayers outward even when he's in a place he didn't expect to be probably full of suffering. And he's asking that, Lord, would you please open the contexts for me to share the gospel? And then not only does he ask that that would be open before him, but he prays that he would be bold so that when they do happen, he would actually walk into them. And then as he walks into those in boldness, that he would do so with clarity of language and clarity of speech. So my friends, I think this has implications for us in very specific ways. One of those is, I think it would be really good for all of us who are not elders at North Wake 
to pray for our elders that they would regularly have open doors for evangelism. So let me challenge you to be praying for our pastors in this way, that you would, you would pray for all of our pastors and elders that they would be, have open doors frequently to, to be able to uh, recognize the gospel opportunity. And then as we're praying for them, that we would pray that they would be bold to take that opportunity to speak the word of Christ and that they would do it with great clarity. I think there's also further implications of this. I think we should be praying the same way for our missionaries. When we pray for our missionaries and we, we put the far-flung families on the screen up front and we have an elder come up, that we should be praying not only that they get their language skills and they adjust to culture well, but there would be massive opportunities for evangelism and that they would be bold to walk into them. I don't know if you all are aware, if some of our missionaries are in some of the hardest places on earth, and boldness is what we need prayer for, that there would be people that would want to hear and that our folks would be able to go into those. And think about cross-cultural. Some of our missionaries are now learning a third culture and third languages, that in those contexts that they would then be able to be clear and bold with the gospel. But I think there's even more implications. You know, in our congregation, we have a group of people who are gifted in evangelism, and many of them have to be, happen to be our seminary students. Not all of them are, but they've formed groups that go out on Sunday afternoons and other times during the week so that there's no place left in the Raleigh area where anybody has, uh, has heard, the, where people have heard the gospel. If I said that right? There's no place left where they haven't heard the gospel, I think is what I meant to say, right? We should be praying that the Lord would help them to have open doors, boldness, and clarity of speech. And of course, you know what that means. It leaves one group left. We should be praying these things for ourselves, that the Lord would help us to be a people who pray for open doors. I don't know about you all. I find myself kind of lazy in this, but when I get back on the right pathways with my prayer life, it's remarkable to me how many times the Lord all of a sudden drops somebody right in front of me with an opportunity to share the gospel. This happened just a couple weeks ago. Some friends were having a birthday party and they, some folks are over at my house and there were some wonderful friends that are, and all of a sudden I found myself in a gospel conversation with somebody right in my own home. It was wonderful, great people that were there. And I just think, Lord, how many opportunities are in front of us that we don't see, we're not bold enough to speak about, or maybe we don't speak clearly enough about. We should pray about these things as we do this. Okay, so Paul then moves to that then, to the last section of his teaching in Colossians chapter 4. And he goes and he moves in to talk about two things. One of them is our conduct. And that'll then go into how he thinks about how we should speak. So again, look back down at the passage there, and you'll see here in verse 5, conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of our opportunities. So remember, in the front of the book, he prayed for them that they would walk wisely. Now at the end of the book, he's reminding them it's really important that we be mindful. And it's specifically important that we be mindful towards outsiders. What does this mean for us? Well, perhaps it means that we ought to remember that a watching world is looking at the way that we live our lives. So we want to be careful to, uh, to really want, avoid two extremes when we think about walking in wisdom. One of the extremes is that we would become so legalistic in our morality that we actually add things to the Bible that are not in the Bible themselves. And we want to be careful to not do that because that can turn people off unnecessarily based on moralism. But on the other side, and this is probably the greater danger for the church today, is that we have so much Christian freedoms 
that we, we kind of liberally let ourselves begin to look a lot like the world that we live in, and there's really no measurable dif- difference between our lives and the lives of those in the, in the community. And Paul would say for us to avoid these extremes and rather walk wisely. And as you think about where we are in our culture with all the questions about sexual ethics and all the stuff that's going on in rela- relation to right to life and the sanctity of human life, and the world is, is kind of confused all around us on these things, what a time for us to walk wisely. But not just walk wisely, speak wisely, which is where he finishes the passage here in verse 6. Let your speech always be done with grace as though seasoned with salt, so that we will know how, uh, so that you will know how you should respond in each scenario. This passage almost preaches itself, doesn't it, right here? I think when Paul writes the word speech, we should think about public communication. Public communication. Because it's really careful, it's, it's important for us to be really careful with the way that we text the way that we blog, the way that we respond to internet posts. I think it's also really important to even know what t-shirt you're wearing in public. Because Paul wants us to be the kind of people who aren't really busy giving zinger gotcha conversations. And isn't that what's really happened now in our, all of our public media? It doesn't really matter whether you watch Fox or CNN. It doesn't really matter what blog post you're on. It's amazing how so much of our conversations now are about how to win an argument and put somebody down. And what Paul wants us to say is, no, the Christian's language, the Christian's communication, the Christian's t-shirts should not be interested in gotchas and zingers. And perhaps, my friends, For all of us, myself very much included in this, there's no harder place for us to do this than in the realm of politics, right? We're coming up on another election season, and what you're going to see commercial after commercial after commercial is all about how bad the other person is. Not a whole lot of what good ideas I have. You know, it's one thing to disagree with one another. Welcome to the human race, right? It's quite another thing to put somebody down because they disagree with you. Call somebody woke or liberal or uh, a fundamentalist or, you know, these hate terms that we use to label people instead of asking a question. That's interesting. Why do you hold that? C.S. Loomis was famous for saying that we as Christians should not argue against each other. We should argue with each other to try to find truth. Isn't that powerful? That it'd be more interesting in aligning with truth than proving I'm right. And so this is the reason why Paul will go on and say our our language then needs to be seasoned with salt. So what is salt supposed to do? Well, salt does three things. Salt adds flavor, salt prevents decay, and salt makes people thirsty. So think about your speech when you're writing a blog post or when you're tweeting something or you're responding to something that somebody has said, maybe even our own congregation that you didn't really like a lot. Does the way that you respond add a a, a nice flavor, right? You can add all kinds of flavors. Does it add a nice flavor to the conversation? Does it prevent things from decaying in the conversation? And crucially, Does it make someone thirsty that they want to stay engaged with you in the conversation? Think about your own communication publicly. 
when it comes to spiritual conversations, political conversations, ethical and moral conversations, would the way that you talk about these make your friends and your neighbors say, man, that was really interesting. Can we talk about that some more? Or are they shut down conversations? I'm right. If Jesus were to read your t-shirt, your posts, or your replies on social media, would he say, wow, wow, that was really wise. That was really welcoming. Thank you for inviting someone into a deeper and richer conversation. And if not, then I think Paul would want us to say, something needs to change in me. Now, why? Because the supremacy of the incomparable Christ who's head over all things deserves to be worshipped by all people at all times and all places. And so the way that we pray should invite people towards that. The way that we live should invite people towards that. The way that we speak should make people thirsty to have more conversations about the incomparable Christ. So you see how the Oreo works? So we're back to the Oreos. We're back to the double stuff. And what I'm hoping is that what you got from me this morning as we talked about Oreos, probably way too much this morning on that, is that there were three main ideas I wanted to get across to you. The first one was to give you a device to think about the whole book of Colossians. That Paul writes it so that in the beginning he gives an introduction and tells them how he wants them to live. In the end, in what we just did, he gives you that in the same thing. But the crucial part of the book is that these cookies are held together because of the central part of the doctrine. This beautiful cream that's in the middle. Now, having done that, the second thing I wanted you all to get is this crucial idea that right living depends upon, is fundamentally must be driven by, the internal arguments of doctrine. So right doctrine should lead us to right living. And then thirdly, my hope was to give you this metaphor so that you would be able to understand the full context of the passage that we were just in, where Paul suggests that we need to be people who are praying for the lost, that we would be fervently praying for them, praying for open doors, for boldness, and for the right words to say, that we would then be the kind of people who both in our conduct and our speech would bring maximal glory to the king of the universe, and that we would be a people who are on mission to listen to the words, reach the lost, and equip them to join with us in the process of becoming mature and ministering worshipers of God. The book of Colossians invites us into this. Why? Because of the supremacy of the incomparable person who Jesus Christ is, demands from every person at all times and all places, including ourselves, that we live maximally for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, as we thank you for this beautiful revelation that you've given us in the scriptures today, we, we do pray, and I'm serious about this, Father, I, I pray that, Lord, not that we'd think about Oreos when we think about Colossians, but that if we ever pick up an Oreo for the rest of our lives, we'll think about the supremacy of the incomparable Christ who's head over all things. And Father, more than just when we eat Oreos, obviously, Lord, would you help us at all times to be the kind of people who live under your supremely beautiful headship, and that whether I'm a wife who's submitting to the head of a husband, whether I'm a husband who's trying to act out in love and service proper headship, whether I'm a, a child, a parent, someone who's an employee, or whether I'm a church member who's trying to think about how to make a difference in my neighborhood, 
All of these would be places in which, Father, our prayers would be marked by evangelism and thankfulness, our conduct would be marked by wisdom, and our speech would be inviting so people could know you as our great and living God. We pray for help with this, Father, today, and we ask that your mercies would help us to be more like you in all days. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.